Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland. We are absolutely thrilled to be starting a new season for you all. This season is called Radical Mountain Woman and it's an exploration of the relationship between women and the environment in Scotland. We're going to be looking through the portal of the Scottish Mountaineering Journals from the 1890s. This is funded by the Royal Society of Literature. So get your boots on, Annie, because we are going into the mountains, led by the Scottish Mountaineering Club Journal. Are we going to have a map at least? Nope, we're winging it. Oh no. Just kidding, that would be irresponsible, Annie. And mountain safety is no joke. But this is more a map of words, building the landscape around us, forming towering crags and filling deep lochs and leading us through it. You're not convincing me at all that this map is going to get us from A to B successfully. Jenny, I thought you would be better at this considering you do so much cartography. It is my day job, yes, but I like to leave it at my desk. (laughs) (laughs) And what are A and B but letters, Annie? I think we'll be just fine. Come on. Let's go back to the inception of these journals. Volume 1 was published in 1891, two years after the club was started. At this time, they were the leading literature for mountain writing in Scotland. The journals are full of descriptions of early mountain exploration. However, they uphold a sense of exclusion from the mountains through the voices that they leave out. So as we were reading these archives, what struck us was that there were no entries of the experiences of women in the mountains. In the first decade of the club, there was a distinct exclusion of women writing in the Scottish Mountaineering Club journal. Let us in! We've got pickaxes! So women are only mentioned briefly in passing. And so in this series, we will climb in these margins with women of the past. Making mountains out of these margins. What we are searching for are the stories of women in the Highland environment. Their resistance against injustices of the land. Striding out of the shadow up the mountains and glens, between languages and in the liminal space of myth and nature. It's 10am on August 10th, 1891, and we are at the foot of our first mountain, Ben Screel, a steep mountain on the west coast of Scotland. Screel stands proud above Loch Horn on the ragged northwest coast of Scotland. It is somewhat protected from the open Atlantic Ocean by the Isle of Skye, which lies just across the water of the Sound of Sleet. Ben Screel means the Mountain of Scree in Gaelic, and it's easy to see why. Its long gullies are filled with masses of loose, dark rock, which, from afar, seem to flow from the mountain, giving it an air of perpetual motion. Let's open the Scottish Mountaineering Journal, Volume 1, page 203, Ben Screel, by William Douglas. August 10th, the day fixed, 
opened bright and clear. Without a cloud overhead or a breath of wind to ruffle the polished mirror-like strip of the ocean, it stretches before us over to the dark shore of sky opposite, which duplicates itself in the reflecting expanse. Such was the choiceness of the day that it inspired another party also. A lady and two gentlemen with the hill-climbing mania, accompanied by Gilly to act as their guide. We saw them start as we smoked our morning pipe and lazily enjoyed the lovely scene from the hotel door. This is her, passing our writer by. It's here that we pick up the story of our first radical mountain woman. About 11 o'clock, an hour after they had gone, we were on our way on the road that runs southwards from the hotel door. Forty minutes of walking brought us to the Pictish Towers. What had become of our friends with the gilly, we were at a loss to guess, as we certainly had expected to overtake them before this. It turned out, however, that their guide had laughed to himself on hearing us talking of our intended route, it being ever so much longer and stiffer than the usual one, of which we knew nothing. The climb to the top of the shoulder, which is 2,750 feet, was a rather stiff one and necessitated frequent halts to recover wind. Each step, however, gave an ever-widening view of a grand amphitheatre of hills, and the stoppages were appreciated in a double sense. We reached the top breathless and panting, but to our delight, evidently, before our fellow travellers. We'd just finished our sandwiches when the party from Glenelg arrived their guide not looking over well pleased to see us at the top before them. They, however, did not remain any length of time, and soon disappeared down the quarry they had come up on the west side of the hill. We descended by a precipitous little gully, filled with slate-like stones, which afforded a very precarious and slippery footing, and slid down with a noise like an avalanche from a crockery shop at every step. We had to use the utmost caution to prevent ourselves sliding with them to the bottom more quickly than we cared for. The noise they made attracted the attention of the party ahead, to whom their guide mentioned that he had once descended there, but as he nearly broke his neck, he would never attempt it again. It was not as bad as that. Well, there we go, Annie, our first fleeting glimpse of a woman stepping out from the margins of the Scottish Mountaineering Club. We don't know her name or her age or her star sign, but we know that she climbed Ben Screel on August 10th, 1891. And we only know this because William Douglas had to write that he made it to the mountain before her party. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is an important year for the Scottish Mountaineering Club because 1891 was the year that Sir Hugh Munro first published his Munro Tables in the journals, which is why we call our biggest mountains Munros. 
so his Monroe tables were a list of mountains over 3,000 feet. And this sparked massive mountain mania back then. Our hiker up Ben Screel was proving that the Monroes aren't just summits for men, no matter how fast they climb them. <laughs> I could actually figure out a lot about the path that both hiking parties took up the mountain in William Douglas's article. So I mapped it out to try and feel the world in her 130-year-old hiking boots. And let me tell you, Annie, she had small feet. <laughs> but the hikes were about equidistant. In fact, I went and hiked the mountain myself last year, taking in a mix of both of their routes. And I'm not going to lie, Annie, I'd much rather have hiked the men's route. It was far more gentle. Jenny, this is not a competition. Yeah, but if it was, I'm just saying. Some people do like to hike for as a competition, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> the early journals definitely served to rewrite the narratives of the Highland Mountains to be trophies won by mountaineers. When actually, these places are kind of just the homes of folks for centuries. You're right. So let's step out of this article even further and explore life around the mountain a little bit more. For every inhospitable mountain top, there are hospitable valley bottoms. Glens are protected from high winds. The burns running through them are endlessly replenished by the peaks above. Birch forests grow from fertile soils. Wildlife shelter and nest, and humans settle. It didn't take long after the glaciers retreated, some 10,000 years ago, for the scoured and barren landscape to become colonised. Lichens paved the way first, and trees eventually followed over the next few thousand years. And it's in this landscape that people first began settling in the Highlands. Their choice of home was undoubtedly guided by the landscapes around them. Rivers, forests and natural harbours all played a role in determining where they plonked themselves down. Pre-plonking, these prehistoric people were nomadic, moving with the seasons and the food supply. But over time, as agriculture became practiced about 4,000 years ago, the food source stopped moving, and so the people stopped too. And one place that was thoroughly plonked is the glen that the north face of Ben Squeal slopes down into, Glen Bake. For here, in this lush green glen, lie the remains of two ancient brochs, Duntelve and Duntrodden, spectacular windows into Iron Age life. For anyone who isn't living in ancient Scotland, can you just quickly explain what a broch is, Jenny? Of course. Let us climb through this ancient window. Brochs are huge stone towers. In their heyday, about 2,000 years ago, the dry stone walls would have stood up to 13 metres tall. And with their wooden thatched roofs sitting atop, they would reach a whopping 16 metres tall. That's 52 feet. Just going to take a moment to say how much I really love dry stone walls. <laughs> I mean, the people of Scotland and Ireland also 
really perfected a means of building walls without using any mortar, anything to cement the stones together. And it's just incredible. I once saw a dry stone diker when I was on a walk and I stopped for ages just to have a blether and to watch how the walls are made. And it is such an art, such a skill to get just the right stones in the right places that everything will be perfectly balanced and angled so that it will stand up and can be built up high. And they're so well built that they stand for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the Glenelg rocks are exceptional examples. What you're describing is as tall as a modern three-story building, Jenny. Yeah, and that's because they were three-story buildings, Annie. It's incredible. Duntelv is one of the best-preserved brochs in all of mainland Scotland. One half of its walls still stand up to 10 metres tall. And in the wall, we can see spaces where timber for two more stories would have been slotted. These huge cooling tower-shaped beasts were, as you said, Annie, built using dry stone, meaning that not an ounce of mortar, cement or superglue was used in their construction. They are prehistoric, architectural and engineering marvels. The knowledge, experience and skill required to construct these imposing towers was immense. And the fact that they are still standing to this day, 2,000 years later, is evidence of the quality of the astounding craftsmanship that these people had. Brochs are dotted all around the coasts of the highlands and islands, especially in Caithness. On our socials, we will pop up some photographs of the Glenelg rocks because they are beautifully preserved examples of rocks. They were actually somewhere that I used to play when I was young. My father worked a scallop boat off of Glenelg and we'd often stop off in the rocks and I would hide in the ruins and jump out at people. <laughs> creepy Annie in the, in the dark corners of the brook. <laughs> That was a childhood game for me. It was like, <laughs> on the brock. On the brock. <laughs> um, it's quite interesting. You're calling them the Glen Elg brocks, but that's because they are located close to the little town of Glen Elg, but they're actually in Glen Bake, just in case anyone is on the hunt for them and finds themselves up the wrong glen. Now, while the two Glen Elg brocks stand fairly well preserved, most of them have collapsed and only the foundations of the immense five metres thick walls can be seen today. These huge towers are from the Iron Age and were constructed somewhere between 400 before Common Era and 100 Common Era, so about 2,000 years ago. But they could have been inhabited for hundreds of years. They are the pinnacle of Iron Age construction, not the start of it meaning that the Glen has likely been inhabited for far longer than the towers have been there. Evidence of this is found in the semi-broch further up the Glen, which is a predecessor to the bigger brochs. Oh, it's wee Granny Broch, looking down upon her little broch grandchildren with pride. Yes, and proud Granny Broch would have still been constructed late on in the plonking game. When people first decided to stop chasing deer, they constructed their homes from wood and dried peat turf. But this requires the felling of trees. And so, 4,000 years ago, we began altering the landscape, 
felling trees for the construction of homes, as well as clearing them for agricultural land. This, combined with a cooler, wetter climate, meant that by 2,000 years ago, half of the natural woodland in Scotland was gone. And so, for our Iron Age builders, large standing timber was hard to come by in the far northwest of Scotland. But you know what wasn't hard to come by, Annie? Midges. Technically correct, yes, but good luck trying to build a 16-metre tall tower out of midges. (laughs) (laughs) The people had plenty stone. And while this had many limitations, it means that the buildings don't rot away like timber or huge amount of midges would. And instead, they remain for us to marvel at on a podcast nowadays. So do we know why these folks built massive towers out of stone? Probably to keep the midges out, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. It's an interesting question because I have a few older books from the 70s on Scottish prehistoric archaeology. And in them, brocks are only ever considered to be defensive towers, lived in by the elite of society who partook in a warring culture which required these imposing stone towers, not only for protection, but also as a sign of power and strength. But interestingly, over the last few decades, this view has evolved with the evidence found in the archaeological excavations of brocks, and it's now thought that brocks were far more likely to be the centre of farming communities, places where grain was processed, baskets were weaved, and where people lived and gathered. Like a very tall and dark community centre. Yes, yeah, because you're, I mean, you're right, the lighting was not great, there are no windows in brocks, and the door is tiny, which required a stooped hunch waddle to get in and out of. But there was plenty of space for a table tennis table inside them, so that was handy. I don't think they played table tennis in the Iron Age. Well, what's a community centre without a table tennis, Annie? Well, okay, <laughs> instead of table tennis, these were Iron Age folks, which meant they would have been working with metals to create tools, weapons and jewellery. And possibly table tennis tables. We don't know. <laughs> we can't rule it out. Yes, we can, Jenny. Yes, we can. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But yes, the metal working classes were on Wednesdays from 2 to 6 at the community centre Broch. They probably weren't in the Broch, but in a close-by area, which we can see in the remains of Gurness Broch, which has a designated smelting area in the close-packed buildings surrounding it. And I can't remember which one, but there's a splendid quernstone for our grain-grinding evening class. But, Annie, it is also worth noting that if, during this grain-grinding class, the community centre Broch did come under siege, they were probably used for protection and hiding in too. Their thick stone walls and tiny singular entrances would have made a great protective fortress. But it wasn't their singular use. And most nowadays think that they were far more community-focused than the original overruling warring family theory. And when war wasn't happening, what can we tell about these people's lives in the shadow of Ben Screel? They love table tennis. (laughs) (laughs) Jenny, I hate you. (laughs) Well, we know that they were farmers and they would be working with the seasons to plant, harvest and prepare grains. 
But we can also tell that agriculture was not the only food source that supported these communities. And the reason for this is rubbish. I love a good dumpster dive. Get your mittens on, because we're going into the middens. <laughs> Excavations have found large numbers of limpet, mussel, welt and oyster shells discarded after dinner 3,000 years ago, showing that these communities also relied heavily on seafood for survival. As you said, Annie, most of these ancient settlements lie dotted around the coastal edges of Scotland because the sea was vital for survival. Lochs, rivers and the ocean were the motorways of their day. These folk didn't live an isolated life in the glen. They'd socialise, trade, build brochs and celebrate with the communities around them. The isles were a quick paddle away and these were widely populated. The people may have reared cattle, sheep, goats and or pigs, as well as hunting game. The forests around them held bears, deer, wolverine, unicorns, beavers and wolves. So, like, no wonder they cut them all down. <laughs> so just to clarify, <laughs> Iron Age people didn't play table tennis. And they certainly didn't play table tennis with unicorns. <laughs> Jenny is just embellishing the facts here. I like to think that most people would know that unicorns and table tennis don't go well together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining the table tennis ball stuck on the unicorn <laughs> horn like, like an inverted ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Jenny, you absolutely love trees, so you can't be supportive of the destruction of this natural habitat. It doesn't benefit the people, right? Uh, not really, other than it gives them wood and a place to farm. But maybe that's why they were hiding in the broths. Not warring neighbours, but bears. <laughs> but yes, unfortunately, much of these people's lives is unknown and wide open for me to make stuff up about but brochs are a fascinating window into the far past, which I enjoy climbing through when no one's looking. No one's ever looking at us, Jenny. They're just listening on a podcast. Well, yeah, and you can all listen to me climb through ancient windows all day long. But not, not windows, Jenny, because brochs don't have windows. <laughs> you established that quite early on. This is, this is true. In Glenbake, there are two brochs less than 500 metres apart, evidence of a thriving community. A community of well-organised, intelligent, skilled, well-dressed table tennis playing folk. Okay, Jenny, back through the window you go. Just going to lock her out for a while. I'm sorry about that, listeners. They really did not play table tennis. This story comes from Thomas Murchison, who was a Gaelic-speaking minister in Glenelg in the 1930s. We often see in old maps that there's a bit of ambiguity about where brochs come from. I looked at one of the early Ordnance survey maps for Glenelg, and these brochs are described as <clears throat> supposed Pictish Tower. That's in inverted commas, but it's really hard to do that in a podcast. <laughs> 
However, I've also seen Iron Age archaeology described as Druid's houses. I've seen it once as ancient community centre. No, you haven't, Jenny. You're making that up. (laughs) So when there's uncertainty of when an ancient building was built or who built it, when the facts aren't really known, we can find a little overlap into mythology being created, giving more layers of stories to a place. Like lasagna. Now, (laughs) like a big dry stone lasagna. Does that just mean a lasagna with no sauce in it? It's just, it's just, it's just the pasta. (laughs) No sauce, no mortar, just stones. Stones and stories. Okay. Just stones, no pasta, no tomato, no meat, no cheese. Just stones and mythologies. Dry stone, lasagna, layers and layers of stone, building a broch filled with legend. That's how life goes now. A big stony mythological lasagna. It's just not it's not the best lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Lasagna. So the story we're looking at that connects to these brochs tells us of the tale of Finn McCool and his warriors. So these stories are amazing. They are the Gaelic origin legends for a lot of the natural features of the landscape. And the main characters in these stories are usually giants, witches, fairies. There's a lot of spells going about. And I think it's intriguing that these stories extended from the natural world into the man-made world, that these stories were then applied to a massive man-made broch. And I think it goes to show how exceptional these brochs in the shadow of Ben Screel are. But it kind of makes sense that Finn McCool would choose a very large broch to live in because it's said that he himself was a giant. So these old tales explain to us that Finn and his followers lived inside these brochs. The broch was the perfect site for Finn and his band because they would travel to Sky to hunt. Finn's followers were called the Fianna, a loose group of the bravest warriors who would often perform heroic acts in the legends. Unfortunately, this is definitely not such a story. So the woman of the broch never ate a morsel of food in front of any of the men of the Fianna. Yet the woman remained healthy, strong and powerful and they were able to do any demanding task that was required of them, such as grinding grains with the quern stones, collecting shellfish on the very slippery coast, weaving fabrics of exquisite beauty and wrestling wolves when they threatened their sheep. Whenever the men inquired about how the women sustained themselves, they'd smile and gently divert the conversation. They never explained to the men how they could survive without eating. One of the Fianna, Gary, was not happy to let the food consumption of the women remain a mystery. And so he hatched a wicked plan. It's always going to be a guy, doesn't it? (laughs) When all the men left the broch to go hunting, 
Gary feigned illness and lay in bed. He intended to wait until he could smell the odours of food cooking and then jump out and catch the woman at their meal, proving that they too ate food. Good one, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you care, Gary? Someone tells me Gary's hiding something. The women were unimpressed with Gary's quite transparent plan, and so they decided to have some amusement. Unfortunately for Gary, he had become very comfortable in bed when he was pretending to be sick, and he fell into a slumber. Now, Gary wore a distinctive hairstyle of seven pleats in his hair. And so, to prevent him rising from the bed, the woman used pegs to secure each of the seven pleats firmly to the floor, knowing that this action would keep Gary out of the way. He would be stuck in his bed. Now, certain that Gary could not bother them, the woman of the broch prepared a delicious feast. They kneaded and baked glorious bread out of the grains they had ground. They prepared venison dripping with berries, fish salty with samphire, sweet berries with pieces of honeycomb. The women sat together, they drank their honey wine and they enjoyed their meal and they laughed and enjoyed each other's company. They're ladies who lunch. They're only missing a mimosa. (laughs) (laughs) When Gary awoke, he was furious to discover that he was pinned down by his hair. Nevertheless, he was determined to get free. And so, in one great heave, using all the strength of his legs, he managed to thrust himself upwards and jump to his feet. However... This action ripped out the skin of his skull, leaving it nailed to the floor along with his hair. Oh my god, talk about bedhead. (laughs) (laughs) We both cringed so much when we read this story. (laughs) So surprised that Jenny managed to make me laugh. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry people, it's about to get sad. (laughs) Yes. Enjoy the last while they last. In intense anger from being outwitted and in extreme pain of losing his skull, Gary ran out of the broch. He locked the small door behind him and blocked it with thick logs and then surrounded the building with dried brushwood and harvested bracken from the summer. In spite, he sparked a flint on to all of this dried materials and they went up quickly setting the whole broch on fire all of the women were inside with each other as the smoke choked their lungs and poisoned their bodies it really would have looked like a nuclear cooling tower in this glen across the water in sky Finn sees the smoke rise from the broch and he knows something terrible is happening at his home. He and his warriors used their spears to vault across the narrow sea that separates Skye from the mainland. They hurried to their once safe and happy home, finding it in raging flames. As the embers died down, 
they realized that all of the women had been lost. All had perished and died in the fire. Oh my gosh, this is awful. In shame, scalpless Gary retreated to hide in a cave, where he was eventually discovered in his own misery. Finn was livid by the betrayal, so Gary was punished to be torn to pieces. So scalpless Gary becomes headless Gary. Our reverend ends the story here, but I prefer to expand it a little. The brave women of the Broch, the women who ate and sang and worked together, who had their own little community within the legends, they fell back on their own ancient magic. These women had other powers, spells and charms from the supernatural realms. And so when the Broch was set ablaze, as the smoke leached in, these women made a pact with the fires around them. They swore their spirits to rise with the ash in a great grey cloud. And so these women left their bodies, but their souls raised high into a great cloud that overshadowed the land. And still to this day, when the clouds shroud the surrounding mountains of the west coast, and they block out just a little more sunlight than they should, more than seems natural, you might hear the clack of thunder, see a bolt of lightning. But if you listen very, very carefully, you can hear the women inside the broch eating their feast and drinking their honey wine in the sky. Let us return to the calm blue day of August 1891 and see if we can find a different perspective to this magnificent mountain. Jenny, can you be a radical mountain woman? For once, Annie, I actually think I can be what you're asking me to be. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck, Jenny. On you go. Get up that hill. I feel the morning sun on my body persuading me to walk. The only clouds to be seen are rising from the thick blue tobacco smoke from fellow mountaineers who greet us as we pass them by. A gentle laughter followed our footsteps from our hill-walking comrades. We set out early. The sun had already bleached the sky. At the foot of Ben Screel, my companions paused to admire the faded sands of Elin Riach. The air is rich with the sea. I can taste the salt on my lips. On calm, peaceful days, it seems impossible that this land could have been carved from water. I watch her gently lap the shore, as though she is secretly the true laird of this land. The gentlemen of my party take the opportunity to light their pipes, more clouds, They warn me to catch my breath before the climb, but I clamber by the shore. At the ridge of the coast, my eyes are drawn to breaks in the waves, hunting for the bobbing heads of seals, the fins of whales. We carry on south along the gently undulating coastal road, with barely a tree in sight. 
The views as the sound of sleet opened up to us were magnificent. We stop often to marvel at the theatre upon which we climb. The landscape unfolds. My lungs feel the restraint from the rigidness of my clothing. Still, I wear the loosest fashions available, but they feel ill-formed on my body. Our guide gives us the Gallic names of the outdoors. His words sound like a creaking door. Peaks jutter before us, the individual jagged forms, each in its own powerful stance, tied together in the landscape. From the invincible form of sky to our west, to the small sandig islands just keeping their heads above the water below us. Just as Lochhorn comes into view, we turn inland to follow its glen southeast, walking high above the shoreline, and the sudden steep path is ahead. We began towards the looming peak of Ben Screel, dark and grey in front of us, as if trying to scare us away, while unwittingly drawing us in, tempting us with its ominous presence. We climb on up the quarry ahead, and it becomes steeper still. I feel the strength of my lungs, the pain of my muscles. I commend the enduring mosses and lichens that create a patchy skin over the bones of Ben Screel, for being so brave as to face the Atlantic storms without flinching, and remaining so vivid in their outlook. In fine moods and strong legs we reach the summit, and what stunning views open up to the north, and now to the south we could clearly see Nevis. The mountain men were atop the cairn eating their sandwiches for having raced the wind up. We're almost finished eating our sandwiches, you know. Oh, weast. Smug sandwiches have a certain taste to them. The stomach is never quite filled right when you've bloated your ego like a proud toad. The men didn't seem at all impressed with our chosen route up the mountain or down it, but we heard them clattering and clambering down a steep gully nearby. The poor rocks screamed the whole way down the chute. I wonder the men weren't rolled up down there with them. Anyway, in fine time for the sunset, we lingered on the high ground on our descent, happy to take the harder terrain home for the reward. When the men stop to smoke a pipe by a small lochin, I wander away and look at the flora. The tops of my thighs are chafing, and if I pause too long, I can only think about the stinging pain of it. A movement catches the corner of my eye. It's a small moth with wings painted in the palette of high-altitude earth and rock. The pattern of her wings is that of the scree. She flies as easily as loose stone falls. I think this is a black mountain moth, a species I have not encountered yet. I follow her, entranced by her flutterings, feeling so envious of this small moth's lightness, to sweep dreamlike on high airflows, making ascent seem so effortless. In comparison, my own steps seem clattered, clumsy and heavy. The twilight is cutting in and I will soon not be able to identify her. I'm conscious of my heart pounding as I chase the little moth across a small hillock 
I feel the strength of my body powering me upon this jutting dent on the mountain. Looking down across the mountainside, I see a young woman, perhaps a decade younger than myself, but dressed as though she was from a different era. Her face was under the shadow of a plaid shawl wrapped around her head. She was knitting as she walked. She walked with a lightness and certainty over the uncertain terrain. She was not going to the top. She was merely on her way elsewhere. I wondered if her voice sounded like a creaking door too, and what that creaking door would lead to. A shout from behind me pulls me back to my climbing party, and so we bowed Ben Screel a good night. The final section of the descent was continually taxing my mind to keep my balance. My legs feel like they are metal grinding, so heavy to carry, but carrying me still. I'm so tired as we make haste back to the hotel. The soft golden light washed over the waters of the Atlantic and blanketed the tired mountains behind us. I take pleasure in the stiffness in my muscles, joy in the knowledge of the distance I have walked and the strength in myself, my limbs, my organs, the skin on my heels, these toes, these creases on my hips, the back of my throat that captured the oxygen I needed and the blood in my ears throbbing, stretching of my joints, kneecaps crunching and aching, ankles swollen so slightly, these lungs, this heart, this mind, controlling these elements to the finest of details that lets me walk and climb. The mountain shows my body that I am a thousand pieces of scree screaming, and yet I climb. So does it make you feel broken, the climb? No, you can't understand the life of a woman in 1890. We exist in this time in fragments. Most of the world doesn't believe I'm made for climbing, yet I do this for myself. The climb gives me parts of my body which I wouldn't otherwise feel. Like when you see a new constellation in the stars at night. No one would judge the night sky for being incomplete, though it is made of fragments. I don't know. Tomorrow, I shall be on the morning train homewards, back to Edinburgh. I am a thousand pieces of mountain, heading back to the city. It feels like such a privilege to be able to bring this story to light. To bring this woman to life found nameless in the Scottish Mountaineering Journal. We looked deeply into the details of what her experience of this climb would be. Her practical leather boots to the heavy skirt that she would have worn. At first, I assumed that this kind of garment for hiking would have been really uncomfortable. However, if we compare it to the formal boned dresses for Victorian middle-class and upper-class women, then perhaps her walking garments would have felt quite freeing. Yeah, and even if not, she was at least freeing herself of the boundaries of her society in some way. 
This woman had no vote and little power in her world. But in the mountain, up Ben Squeal, the only constraints she had were her own legs. She was in a party of four, all equal in their goal to the summit. Thank you all so much for listening. We really hope you've enjoyed this journey into Glenbake and up Ben Screel. You can really help us, we independent podcasters, by rating and reviewing our podcast, as well as sharing it with your friends, family and enemies, <laughs> and the rest of the world. <laughs> we are on all of the social medias, and we often share photos we come across in research. So if you want to look at our socials, then look at them, but if you'd rather not then that's okay too. But I would highly recommend looking at them because Annie has been smashing it recently with some fantastic old photographs. You can also support us by joining our lovely little Patreon. So for the price of a dram a month, you can be part of our shining Scottish support group as we research, write and release the show. We absolutely love making it and having your support means so, so much to us. If you head over to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland, you'll find us and lots of extra mini podcast segments waiting for you. Also, an exceptionally warm welcome to our new Patreon members. Susan, Aragorn, Amy, Jim, the Nomadic Clarks, Martin, Chelson Emily, Denise and Annie. I like to think of you all as stone-carving picks inside the rocks making some superb artworks. You see, the picks carved stones with lots of secret meanings, from the Pictish beast to the moons and fish and... Okay, I'm just going to cut in right now and say that most of what the carvings on Pictish stones are actually is the recording of scores from table tennis tournaments between the different clans. But there's also a thought that the Picts managed to brew this magical heather ale that gave them the gift of immortality. And I'm hoping that you lovely Patreons are these wonderful stone-carving Picts playing table tennis and drinking your heather ale. Oh, it's a sublime time. All right. Radical Mountain Women is funded by the Royal Society of Literature, inspired by the writing of the Scottish Mountaineering Journal. Until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava. Let us in! Let us in! <laughs> Whenever I try to do like a feminine voice, just feminine, I can't. <laughs> Let us in! We've got pickaxes! It's a really hard one to read because they're writing in such long sentences. Imagine you're swirling a dram in one hand. The room is smoky. You've got a wife at home who you don't care about. But she looks after the children. (laughs) You don't care about them either. (laughs) But they keep the wife busy. (laughs) Polished mirror-like strip of the ocean. (laughs) Like... <laughs> Are you trying to suggest this at the same time? Hey, I got a wife at home and she hates me a little bit. <laughs> Jenny, we don't have time to laugh. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
Save it for the death at the end, Jenny. <laughs> oh, we were so pretentious in 2020. We were so pretentious. Yeah. Um, it's like a helicopter. It's great because before you said that, it looked like it might have been a ghost. And let me tell you, Annie, she had small feet. But the hikes were... <laughs> but at the end... <laughs> I don't but... understand why that's a joke, Jenny. Because I'm obviously not putting her walking boots on. <laughs> oh, it's a metaphor because you mapped her path. Jenny, you're so clever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do that in a podcast. Quick, 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 quick. However, <laughs> that noise just can't mean everything, Jenny. Neither old tales explain. Neither old tales explain. Neither old tales explain. Why can't I say explain? <laughs> Explain. <laughs> Explain yourself. <laughs> that was obviously like a record, Annie. Like a record. <laughs> now the old... <laughs> Explain. With the dried brushwood and harvested bracken of the summer. Brushwood. Brushwood. What did I say? Brushwood. The bougie brushwood. <laughs> In shame, scalpless Gary had retreated to hide in a cave. Scalpless Gary, is that what we're calling him now? Yes. <laughs> okay, that was good, that was good. I just like the name Scalpless Gary. I think that's a okay. good nickname. Yeah, that's, that's cool. You can hear the women inside the broch eating their feast and drinking their honey wine in the sky. And they do this game called Pass the Scalp. And whoever the scalp... <laughs> whoever the scalp lands with has to finish their drink. <laughs> and then they use the braids to do an intricate skipping game. <laughs> Are you drinking wine? Any wine. I mean, no one's ever looking at you, Jenny. No, they're just listening on a podcast. <laughs> oh, now I get it. Thank you. 